0: Who are you going to fight against when this balloon of yours goes up? Forces of anarchy, wreckers of law and order, see, communists, Maoists,
1: Trotskyists, Neo-Trotskyists, crypto-Trotskyists, union leaders, communist union leaders, <laughs> see, atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug, the government love, the government the government Thanks for being uh, here today, Ray, and thanks for joining me. Um, so I'm going to talk about a number of things with you uh, today I'm gonna to talk about your background uh, some of the different various different interests in sort of medicine in philosophy uh, in the humanities in philosophy and uh, I think you're I think could, could we describe you as an existentialist
0: I've had an existentialist period but if you look at the individual existentialist <laughs> philosophers such as Sartre and Heidegger whom I've read in great detail I have, uh, major dissent from some of their positions, either their metaphysical positions or their ethical positions.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay, so in terms of your background, right, so what, from I've looked at other interviews with you, you're from Liverpool originally, is that am, correct? Yes. Yeah. Is that something that plays in? Uh, you see yourself as a Liverpudlian Do you? Is that?
0: I have to tell you, you never recover from being a Um <laughs> It's kind of like being then, isn't it's it? Like being a <laughs> you know, they all say that uh, you've got to be a comedian to live. Many comedians come from Liverpool because you've only been a comedian to to live there. And as far as I'm concerned, if I have a sense of humour, it's a Liverpool sense of (laughs) humour.
1: Okay. Now, one of the other things I'm reading, uh, reading about your background, is that it says that your father was um, a successful businessman. Yeah. And uh, I think you've written in an interview uh, with The Guardian a couple of years back, you said that uh, he imbued in you a deep sense of responsibility. Yeah. Now, I'm just wondering, maybe we could take that as a starting point. Is that something that you think you have retained in all of your different work as doctor, poet, philosopher, writer?
0: I think that's true. i basically the unbearable weight of responsibility. You know, Milan Condera talked about basically the unbearable lightness of being. But if you do have a sense of responsibility, that's unbearably heavy. It's interesting when, my, when I was about mm. 14 or 15, my father said, what do I want to do with my life? And I said, I want to be useful. He said, that's outrageous. You have responsibility to your wife and your children. And all this nonsense about wanting to be of use to society is just nonsense. But actually, in a way, I ran with his sense of responsibility, but pointed it in a slightly different direction. He came from a different generation for whom survival was all. He was one of nine children. Uh, father disappeared. Mother went blind. And so he had a sense of how tough life was. But so, he was a man of great integrity.
1: So you, you changed the world where you can at the beginning,
0: uh, yes, I mean, uh, mm. anyway, I got into medicine by accident to some extent. Mm. In the late in the 1960s, you're far too young to remember this, mm-hmm. there was Thank a great you. DNA... <laughs> that's for noticing. DNA had just been discovered, <laughs> or at least its structure had been described, and it looked very much as if we're on the edge of discovering the secret of life, and I thought, that's really what I want to do. And um, so I decided to do biochemistry, but I was advised, if you want to be a biochemist, you really need to be... A doctor in the first place and then applied your biochemistry and mm. medicine.
1: So didn't you start a degree you started with a degree in animal physiology, is that right? Yep.
0: Yeah. Uh, well what actually happened is having been advised that I probably ought to do medicine first, in Oxford you do a, a first degree and I specialise in animal physiology mm. and particular neurophysiology as part of it.
1: Yeah. So yeah, so you made the move then from the veterinary sciences, shall we say, to the human sciences. Well, to, medicine, to human medicine, shall we say. Is that I was just wondering when I saw that, is that right at the beginning you were interested in the intersection of animality, veterinary, and humanity? Yes. I mean, the, the,
0: in Oxford, if you do medicine, you do a first degree. So the animal physiology is really about how the body works. Uh-huh. Kidneys and brain and so on and so forth. Nothing specifically about animals, although a lot of the knowledge comes from beasts uh, who are uh, happy to cooperate with experiments to yield up the secrets of life. But essentially, um, you do a three-year degree in um, something related to biomedical science and then you go off to do clinical work at a hospital. And I did it at St. Thomas' Hospital. So I just thought it was
1: interesting that you seem to have a very sort of consistent preoccupations throughout the course of your career, yeah.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I can still think of having arguments with my tutor at Oxford on human consciousness and the fact that the brain didn't seem to explain human consciousness, and even sort of talking a little bit about intentionality.
1: I mean, this I think that's a good that's a good point to sort of segue to one of your most recent works, and that was one of the, I mean, that was a, the book Aping Mankind, which is, uh, other than your sort of critiques about, against post-structuralism, which I read when I was sort of doing my PhD in Derrida all those years ago, I read Ape Mankind maybe last year and I was just I, was, I thought, oh, well, this is fantastic. I found it very difficult, to have to admit, right? <laughs> but uh, um, uh, but I think, I don't think there was, I never saw a book that I probably agreed with more, actually.
0: Right? That's very encouraging, yeah.
1: Yeah, but I was, uh, I mean, from my perspective at least, but um, in terms of what you're talking about in that, I mean, right, so there seems to be two trends, right? Three things, sorry. There's one your critique of what you call neuromania, and two, your critique of Darwinitis, and three, your attempt to... uh create a different type of uh, register or grammar for exploring the humanities. Absolutely. And so can we maybe go through what you okay. mean by yes. those three things? So we'll start with, I guess, neuromania, if that's okay.
0: Yes, I mean, but perhaps step back a little bit. Sure. I mean, there is an overarching theme, which is we have a challenge to define what it is to be a human being. And I guess the 10 years I wasted dealing with post-structuralism was, first of all, it was triggered by my loathing of the bad philosophy and worst linguistics that drove it, but also because it was anti-humanist. Yes. you'll be familiar yes. with the claim that there's no such thing as the
1: subject, yeah.
0: it's basically just a node in a system of signs. that the self is dissolved in the ocean of signification and so on and so forth and that seemed to be profoundly anti-humanist anti-the notion of the individual agent all of those were really very important uh, but that was probably a 10 year waste of time because ultimately post-structuralism has died the death and if I'd been a bit more patient I wouldn't have squandered time writing about it Although it was an opportunity to think through a lot of um, ideas about the relationship between language, consciousness and the world. So that was part of my defense of humanism against anti-humanism. And a large book that summarized all that at the end of the 1990s was called Enemies of Hope which was a defense of humanism explicitly against anti-humanism against anti-humanist Marxism against anti-humanism the anti-humanist scientism and so on and so forth. Um, After that I focused very much on naturalism and scientism as sources of anti-humanism. It seems to me that as a secular humanist I'm quite happy to have marked up religious beliefs. And many of my fellow humanists feel that's the whole story, job done. But actually that's not enough, particularly because many of those who say we don't have a supernatural account of human beings, or we, we can reject a supernatural account of human beings, that it implies we must therefore embrace a naturalistic one. Man no longer being supernatural, must be a piece of nature. And it's the notion of ourselves as essentially organisms that uh, really I've been criticising for the last decade or more. And one aspect of that is the notion that I am my brain. The other notion is that the Darwinian processes that generated the organism Homo sapiens can also explain. The human person. Now, I'm not I'm, I'm totally subscribe. I subscribe totally to Darwinism, of course, uh-huh. but I believe it explains, takes us only as far as the, as the human organism, not as far as the human person. And Darwinism is to say, is to accept Darwin's account of how Homo sapiens as an organism appeared. Darwinism is to say this not only explains the organism, but also the human person, and that's where I dissent. and much of what I've written is been trying to show in what way pers- what way persons are distinct from organisms. okay
1: so and that's that's interesting because I mean that's that's that I guess that's what's kind of unique about your position because if 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 it, How can I put it? If the... Yeah, so you're not... If you're not rejecting evolutionary theory, right? I mean, there are philosophers such as Dan Dennett who would say that, you know, freedom evolves, you know, and the human being is sort of a byproduct of evolutionary processes. And we can look at human beings in a very, very... You know, using evolution as the main um, driving uh, source of meaning for that. I mean, where does it begin and end for you, I think? Where does when do we stop I mean, or I mean i guess what is it what is it that's distinct about the human yes. that you draw from evolution yes. before you go
0: okay you know we,
1: we, you know we're, you know we're, we're not doing scientific reductionism yes. now
0: essentially we are explicit animals let's say we uh, do things for reasons that we fully understand not always, of course, that we have laws and institutions and norms which we consciously subscribe to or consciously dissent from. We have uh, modes of expression that are extraordinarily complex, higher order, that reflect on themselves and so on. Uh, Danette is a, is, a, is a good example of someone whom I would disagree with because he emphasized increasingly that we can have competencies without consciousness. I have to say, I have a little bit of an animus against the net. I once saw a film in which he dismissed me as a poor man's John Searle. Uh, but, <laughs> and all the audience laughed knowingly. And we have debated... I like, I
1: like a man who holds a grudge. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Quite,
0: quite. Uh, but essentially, uh, there is an attempt by many people who subscribe to Darwinitis to marginalise the role of consciousness in our everyday life, of deliberation. Some of them will even deny agency... Some will deny uh, intentionality, um, and one of the things that's missing, it seems to me, in uh, the Darwinitic account of the world is what Karl Popper called the third world, I call the vatosphere. The, the, the world of uh, institutions, norms, appealed to, to rules, um, the world in which we enact extraordinarily complex actions. The social world? The social world, absolutely. But the social world can sometimes be assimilated by dominetics like um, Donet, who would say that um, the social world is just a collection of memes, and so on and so forth. And perhaps we can may have an opportunity to look critically at the notion of the memes. One of the things that I've been very concerned about is to actually defend human agency by actually looking at what is involved in a pretty ordinary action. And perhaps we could talk about that. I mm. um.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's good. I mean, maybe we could talk about that after you explain sort of the other side of Darwin as what else you're critiquing, which is the neuromania. Neuromania, of course. Yeah, yeah. so... Yeah. So, as you talk about the explicit subject, the fair the the idea of the sort of, I mean, coming from a phenomenological background, I see what you do as a, as a type of a type of phenomenology. Absolutely. You know, where we sort yeah. of yeah. we look at sort of lived experiences in practice as a sort of explicit worldly being. Um, but you see, I mean, neuromania, you see that as an, a severe impediment to, to being able to think in that way. And I mean, that neuromania is, I mean. Aping mankind, you go into great lengths to look at the, the, the different ways this has been, this plays out through the brain sciences, through neurology, and all the other uh, neuro plus X that it could be uh, applied to. So, I guess what I'm wondering is then, I mean, well, firstly, what do you understand yourself by neuromania, and what, what then is your alternative? Absolutely.
0: It seems to me that um, it is perfectly true, and I know this as someone whose main research has been in stroke and epilepsy, and I've looked after many patients with stroke and epilepsy, that having a brain in good working order is a necessary condition of functioning in everyday life. If you chop my head off, my IQ falls quite precipitously. Bash me on the head. IQ falls, and in fact you can have... um, So you're a bit of a materialist then. Well, it's absolutely true that in order, everything from the slightest tingle of sensation to the most exquisitely structured sense of self depends on having a working brain. In other words, the working brain is a necessary condition of uh, our entry. Into the human world, it doesn't follow from that that our entry in the human world is identical with neural activity. But I think we need to separate a necessary and sufficient condition. So, neural activity of the right sort is a necessary condition of participating in the human world in the way we do, in the complex way we do. But it isn't a sufficient condition. Just like it's a necessary condition for me to converse with you. Or, uh, sorry, I'll start again, it's a necessary condition um, if I'm going to be knocked by, and by a bus in Didsbury, that I should be in Didsbury. I'm very pleased to say that that's not a sufficient condition, mm. otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> so I think we need to separate a necessary from a uh, sufficient condition. Other ways of identifying what's wrong with neuromania is to say, yes of course there is a correlation between what happens in the brain, often at a very high level and my experiences and my capability of certain actions, of course. But correlation is not causation. Even less is causation identity. Neuromaniacs tend to identify uh, neural activity with both consciousness and, indeed, agency. Or at least, what appears to be agency. They have a huge problem, though, with intentionality. And that's, I think, one of the keys to um, mm. criticise, the critique of um, neuromania. It's perfectly obvious the brain is part of the material world. And if we look at my, looking at your face at the moment, it's perfectly obvious there's a causal chain connecting the light coming from your face right through my eyes into the occipital cortex. If you like, there's a causal chain coming in. Where... It is difficult, or what doesn't fit into this materialist picture is not the light getting in but my gaze looking at intentionality. And there's really nothing that falls within the material world that explains that intentionality. Particularly when someone like Jeanette, for example, says that we can explain consciousness using the normal orthodox laws of nature that explain photosynthesis, all those lists of things. Well, there's nothing comparable in nature to the gaze looking out. There's plenty comparable to the light getting in and tickling up the neurons and causing neural activity.
1: So when you say intentionality, then, I, when I hear the word intentionality, I hear it sort of like Husserl would use it like, you know, Husserl says in... Oh, God, I can't remember now which one it was. It wasn't a logical investigation. It was. uh... But it's
0: it's worthwhile thinking about the history of this concept because it's one that keeps on getting lost. Mm. I mean, it came from the Stoics originally. Oh, okay, right. And then then it was very important to medieval philosophy. And it was Brentano's rediscovery of of medieval philosophy in his famous Psychology from the Empirical Standpoint of 1874 it was absolutely central to our understanding that what was key to consciousness what made it different from any other phenomenon in the world was about hence intentionality yeah and that's what
1: that's what husserl says then he says all consciousness is con- consciousness of something i mean absolutely, all consciousness has a is orientated towards the world is directed towards the world i mean and like even husserl would say that the, it you know undermines the separation between Subject and say an object
0: and so it's it's not a coincidence that those who want to as it were Defend neuromania and indeed arminitis want to marginalize intentionality Donette hates intentionality He thinks it's an attitude that we or it's something we ascribe to other things uh, as a way of understanding Um, There are other philosophers who would deny intentionality completely, Um, for example the Churchills and so on, they think it belongs to folk psychology so we we have a situation where something that's undoubtedly true about what happens in our consciousness cannot be Identified with what happens in our brains, it seems to me intentionality is the beginning. It's the seed that then makes possible all sorts of other things. Uh, we begin with an aboutness of perception. We proceed to second-order aboutness of the perception of signs that are themselves about things, and then we have many-layered unfolding aboutness. Uh, which comprises comprises the material world. A material, sorry, comprises the human world, mm. which is woven together out of a trillion cognitive handshakes. That's very that's very beautiful
1: yeah. Um, the um, so you're, yeah. So we can not say you're a materialist. That's what fascinates me. Yeah. We can say, can we can't really say you're Cartesian? I, you know, I mean, On you're not, you're you're not you're not sort of saying that the mind and the body are two different sub sep- substances.
0: It, I mean, it'd be tragic to replace one bankrupt idea with another. No,
1: <laughs> and uh, you're not. I'm sort of a radical reductionist or a materialist like the Churchill's who you cite. So, uh,
0: and I'm, I'm not a panpsychist either I've said some pretty harsh things about panpsychism um, although some nice people hold those views you mm. see to me I'm an ontological agnostic and I feel Could you explain that a little bit you yeah. say that at the moment I do not know what kinds of stuffs we should regard as fundamental whether there should be one Two or many Mm. and um, that is an appropriate position to be in I'm totally with Jerry Fodor not with his views on psychology but with something he once said which is essentially if we are going to really understand the relationship between mind and brain we're going to have to give up a thousand cherished concepts we're going to have to flap uh, if you like the conceptual structures we have at the moment so we haven't even started that job and I to me, those who, in the teeth of evidence, want to identify perception with neural activity, not perception, not neural activity is a necessary condition of perception, but identify perception with neural activity, those who want to do it in the teeth of the evidence, are missing a big trick. And I often think of the analogy of physics in 1900. You know, if, if Max Planck had said, hmm, black body radiation, it doesn't fit, let's ignore it, shall we? or let's pretend it does fit, what would have happened? We wouldn't have had quantum mechanics. We wouldn't have had, basically, the whole of our present world that is largely constructed out of the technologies that quantum mechanics has made possible. And I think the people who, cl- who claim, as it were, that they have a materialist answer to human consciousness, ignoring the most obvious things, such as intentionality, which doesn't fit into the materialist picture, I, I think they're, missing, they're really passing up an opportunity for some potentially very exciting thoughts. This is where the light's going to come in. Basically, yeah. the, the so-called mind-body problem isn't a little local difficulty which needs to be mopped up by better science, by better materialism. It's basically a huge opportunity to rethink our attitude to the world. And as a humanist, who doesn't, as it were, subscribe to supernatural standpoints of supernatural agencies, this distance from naturalism, is, in a sense, is the source of my spiritual beliefs. Okay, well, maybe I, I think I'm going to talk
1: move move to that a bit later because you do have a very sort of a, you do you, you have a very distinct position on atheism as well and humanism. Yeah. I think what I'd like to talk about. Um, I mean, I don't know with regard to what you were saying. I think I, you're you're. I mean, I don't know. You might find this problematic, but you're you're, you're doing what Clifford Gertz the is called thick description right I yeah. mean you're you're not you're trying to bring you're trying to bring, um, you're trying to bring uh, insights from and as you put it yourself the biosphere the semiosphere, and the ethiosphere that our bodies and DNA make up uh, make us up along with our signs and meaning so you're, you're you're not disavowing all of the different uh, aspects, the material aspect, the intentional aspect, and you're trying to give a, a holistic account of what it means to be human.
0: Absolutely right. It's a bit like Wittgenstein once said, the philosophy consists of assembling reminders for a purpose. And the purpose is to, nip, again, using Wittgenstein, to look at what's in front of one's nose, which is, for example, when we are comparing ourselves with chimpanzees, noting all the ways we are fundamentally di- di- different from, from chimpanzees.
1: So, I think what's interesting to me about aping mankind, um, so in terms of, you know, you're trying to offer this thick description of materialism, phenomenology, human agency, instead sort of the neuroscience and all, and try to bring all of these, uh, I guess, competing discourses into some kind of harmony. Um, what I found interesting was that there is... A very, very. Uh, I mean, it's a very. is again, it's sort of a constant preoccupation of you throughout your sort of work. So you start with the, which you've already outlined, your critique of uh, sort of post post-structuralism and post-saocean literary theory and postmodernism. But what really interested me in, I think, was that the opening chapters of Aping Mankind was that postmodernism has now sort of turned to truth. Right, it has turned to. Uh, is is that is that, is that what you argue that the new fad is the truth? is scientific reductionism, you know. So you have, you know, you have literary theory using, you, you know using sort of the brain sciences. You get you have like I don't know you have like sort of uh, materialist readings of Proust and so on. Like, yeah, you know. absolutely.
0: Proust was a neuroscientist, General uh, O'Leary and so on. Hmm. You're absolutely right. It, it basically it's plus Saint-Jean's plus shows. First, it's uncritical. Unusually um, inaccurate interpretation of the deliverances of certain linguists, certain philosophers, and so on, then suddenly uh, a, a flip over, and we have an ungrit- uncritical and inaccurate interpretation of the sciences. Uh, it is it, for me quite poignant because uh, when I was writing very much against uh, not very much against Derrida, Lacan, and their approach to literary criticism, um, I had some allies, people who were really thought this was fantastic, although they didn't uh, say it out loud at seminars and so on, because that was <laughs> not party line. And then I found that some of them had switched right over to scientism. So the notion, for example, uh, that you can really understand the impact that literature has on us by looking at what happens to the brain. So there have been studies looking at, um, say, Shakespeare, and it says, well, let's look at a good line from Shakespeare. Let's look at Coriolanus. There's a great line that says, he godded me. Now, to say of something, he godded, is a particular um, trope, which is or a, a particular trick of functional shift. The word goddage is a noun, is used as a verb. Yeah. So what this particular study i'm thinking of now is wired up people to um, an eeg and looked at what happens to the brain uh, when they're exposed to this line of coriolanus now it's wrong for many reasons Uh, one is we don't enjoy shakespeare line by line the genius of shakespeare doesn't consist of linguistic tricks and of course we mobilize much more of ourselves when we're enjoying plays. But most disastrously, um, the particular thing you see in functional shift, which is a change in a particular way in the brain, is true whatever surprise you have. So if you accidentally walked in some dog dirt, then you get exactly the same thing. And I think
1: watching Coriolines is probably better than watching some dog dirt, yeah?
0: Absolutely. And and the same is with music. Um, Music, according to the science of music, stimulates the dopaminergic pathways, which deliver reward and so, by the way, does orgasm. And I always feel that a science that can't tell the difference between hearing the organ played and having your organ played with <coughs> isn't very accurate as a way of helping us to understand something, say, as profound that's, as Bach's okay. concerto or whatever.
1: That's pretty. Yeah, that's pretty essential um, mechanistic
0: distinctions uh, you need to make. Well, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I mean, the truth is, what happens in the brain is very, very general. It's not culturally specific. And certainly hardly relates to the kind of things that should interest humanists.
1: Yeah. So, can I ask you then, just what, is, how, like, I mean, in terms of when I say the word the brain to you, what does it, what does it evoke, what does it mean? I mean, you've got years of experience doing this in medical practitioners. You've got years of experience looking at sort of different philosophers. When I say the brain, what does it evoke for you as, as, as an organ in terms of its function?
0: It is an extraordinary organ, um, and. We say it's the most complex object in the universe, but we would say that, wouldn't we? Because, you know, we're proud of our brains. But it seems to me that the brain is the starting point. It's our entrance ticket. Our entrance ticket um, to a changing, evolving, enriching human world. I mean, our brains are not terribly different from those of our nearest primate kin. Five million years ago, our brains were rather similar to theirs. And in a sense, our brains have grown a bit and changed a bit, but there's nothing in the evolution of the brain that would even begin to explain the extraordinary transformation of human life compared with the life of other primates. Just let me give you one example. Five million years ago, the height of technological achievement of a chimpanzee was to break a nut with a stone, or basically do a bit of termite fishing. Five million years later, we have nuclear power stations and all the other stuff. What is the height of achievement, technological achievement of a chimpanzee? Oh, break a nut with a stone or do a bit of termite fishing. So something has happened independently of the structure of the rain. And it really is, I mean, in, in the trilogy I published in the early noughties, looked at how we came to be so different as well as looking at why in what way we are so different so
1: you have a sense of you didn't sense, I think you have a sort of a profound sense of wonderment then at this 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 thing called the brain I mean and I guess that's why you were you're very very skeptical about all these different attempts to just reduce everything to sort of mere brain processes
0: yeah yeah and I mean we won't find the human world by looking into the darkness inside the skull but I mean if one is a good darwinian but doesn't subscribe to Darwinitis, One does have to find a biological explanation of how we exp- how we distance ourselves from biology. And I offer a just-so story in one of the in, in the trilogy, which looks at three things that five million years ago made us totally different from our primate nearest primate kin: the upright position, the hand, which has extraordinarily different properties, and uh, our vision. Fish- And if you look at all those three things, you've got enough to get you over a small, low threshold to move from the quite complex consciousness of a primate, a non-human primate, to the kind of extraordinarily complex consciousness of us. didn't happen at once. And in fact, most of the changes have probably taking place over the last hundred thousand years, which is a mere eye-blink in the history of mm. the universe. And, yeah. I mean, language is very important, but really, it is a newcomer. We were much different from other beasts before the most plausible date of the origin of language, which is probably hundred thousand to forty thousand years ago. Yeah.
1: And that is kind of a miraculous thing, then, I guess, for you. I see, yeah, is that? I mean, is that your your? I guess your beef with some of the sort of the The pseudosciences. is it that they're they're not seeing that they're not seeing that wonderment, that that sort of you know sort of sort of crude philosophical sense of the word wonderment? They're 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 doing something that is just trying to get sort of the veneer of scientific respectability. Absolutely. Um, And
0: uh, how they can collapse the distance that has opened up between us and our nearest primate kin. It's interesting. Some of the more responsible ethologists don't feel like this. I mean, Thomas Sudendorf, has written a brilliant book called The Gap. Which is about the gap between ourselves and our chimpanzees. I mean, he he teases us out brilliantly, and he, I mean, he's a very serious primatologist. Um, so there are um, quite a few primatologists who wince at Darwinitis. Mm. Uh,
1: yep, I'd like to sort of talk about sort of some of your more recent work. Yeah, yeah, if that's okay, Ray. Um, one of the there's a t- couple of themes I want to pick up on. And, uh, I mean, your most recent book is. Uh the philosophy of time is what you're engaging in. So your book is called.
0: Uh, it's called "Of Time and Lamentation." Of time and lamentation. Uh, re- reflections on transience. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: And okay. so, what is why? Well, why why do you what is why do you want to pick up on this concept of time? Is yeah. it one of these irreducible questions that 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 of the data sphere as you call it that that we have not just been able to articulate?
0: It is. I mean, it seems to me that um, biologism. Is a great concern, but physicalism is a greater concern. And one aspect of physicalism is the reduction of time to time as it is described by physics. So this book, it's a rather a large book, 720 pages of small print, um, is essentially the first part. It's a critique of the notion that physics is the last word on time. That if you want to have a metaphysics of time, you look to what the physicists tell you. And it includes a critique of the mathematical interpretation of the world, the idea that mathematical physics will give us the most faithful portrait of what is out there. And that's the first part. The second part is very much home territory to you, which will be a phenomenological examination, and those chapters devoted to each of the tenses, the past, the present, and the future, mm. and also chapter on eternity, the notion of eternity. And the third part, having cleared away all the accretions of metaphors, useless metaphors, like the arrow of time, the passage of time, river of time, and so on, tries to look at what time is in itself. Um, That's a tough question, that. It is. And, and, and in fact, the outcome may seem disappointing, but also reassuring, in the sense that time is not reducible to anything else. Any attempt to define time in terms of something else actually draws on time to explain it.
1: So it's not anything, it's not any one thing?
0: Well, I don't know whether it's one thing or two things, I mean, in a sense it is irreducible to anything else. Um, For example, a lot of people say that time is the causal dimension of space-time, that was Hugh Mellon. You say, well hang on a moment, how do you differentiate between a cause and effect? Well, the cause occurs first and the effect occurs second. In other words, you have to have already in place the notion of before and after if you're going to say that time is the causal dimension of space-time. If you say that time is our perception of the sequence of events, well, actually, that boils down to time is our perception of the temporal sequence of events. So you can see any attempt to reduce time or translate time into something else actually draws on the notion of time. So time is irreducible. I mean, that's part of the final part of the book. But it is also related to our freedom. And I mean, I have developed a whole theory of action in relation to the sense, to temporal depth. Temporal depth, which you'll be familiar from Heidegger and so on. Heidegger gets in a big muddle, it seems to me. Um, but it looks at the very the nature of actions uh, and how they inevitably, and this is nothing original there, draw on a past to give them their meaning and a future to give them their goal and so on. The material world, an object at T1 is at T1, end of story. Raymond Tallis at T1 is all over the place. He's temporarily past, present, and future. And in fact, an object at T1 isn't even at T1. It doesn't relate its, if you like, its um, temporal location to a schema and what part of the thatosphere is the um, schema the clock and calendrical time in which we relate our current location in time
1: so so like, i mean there seems to be some parallels there with what Bergson is talking about in times so and Bergson sort of I mean he, he draws these, this very sort of brutal distinction between what he calls qualitative time and quantitative time so quantitative time I guess is what he says space, spa- time spatialized it's, it's, it's sort of the chronological times clock time yeah. calendar time but qualitative time is sort of enduring elongated and he starts using all these different types of metaphors to yeah. try to describe that is that what you're trying
0: to articulate well there is a section of compare and contrast tellis and Bergson. And I agree with Bergson a lot. Uh, but there are certain things with which I profoundly disagree with. him. Uh, one of them is he feels that the damage done to time in physics or in science is the reduction of time to space. But actually I think space and time are equally badly treated because the reduction of space to quantities which happens in physics and so on, that is also a misrepresentation of space. its I call it the reduction of place to decimal place. So although I agree with uh, Bergson quite a lot, uh, there are areas where I, I feel he doesn't go far and deep enough in distancing himself from the scientific portrait of the world. And how, how I mean,
1: it's... I mean it's, it's such a I mean you know St. Augustine talks about it as the most sort of tricky concept of all to sort of get our heads around in the confessions I mean well, I can't recall precisely what he says or something like I know, I know it not escapes me I when I know it I think I know it or whatever I mean, something to that effect but
0: and I feel completely relaxed the idea of time and some, until I ask myself or somebody asks me
1: what is time? That's the one, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, when, when, in sort of an everyday sense, then I wonder, how is time operating for you in trying to, you know, for for the average human being? How is time operating, you know? How is time, what is what is the scheme of time that's operating in their lives, you know? Is it, do they have a sense of it passing? Is it tied up with our mortality,
0: all of yeah. it, you know? Well, I mean, there's two points. Uh, First of all, I think um, Mm. the answer to that question is inevitably and irreducibly complex. That's why there are very long chapters dealing with the present tense, which is impregnated, to borrow a term from herself, with the past, and basically points towards the future. Mm. And each of those has their own complex phenomenology. Um, The uh, relationship to mortality, it seems to me that the notion that time passes, which is a bonkers idea, of course, because as everybody's... as has been pointed out many times. If if you think that time passes, you have to then ask the question: At what speed does it pass? And the answer is: It must pass probably at one second per second. And if you got the same units on the denominator and the numerator, then you're talking nonsense. But actually, the sense of time passing, which is a projection from the dynamism of time taking events into time itself. But the sense of time passing does do justice to our existential sense mm. of helplessness as we are moving towards the end of our own lives. I mean, I do have the feeling that I'm a, in a boat, a little canoe in a fast-flowing river, which is heading towards a waterfall. That's roughly, um, you know... <laughs> you, know. That, that, you and me
1: both, I think.
0: I'm, exactly. I'm, yeah. And I regret it. A lot of people are sick to death of Raymond Alice, but I can't get enough of it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're so bad, Ray. <laughs> um, the, yeah, so, I mean, clearly in that book, you've you've spent, like, a lot of time trying to... <laughs> unpick these this really really, really 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 tricky concepts I mean you really looked at you know you've looked at sort of physics you've looked at sort of the philosophers and you've I guess you've you've come to a position where you're you're not well it's, it's, if, if time is irreducible that's it, isn't it? It just is. a sort of almost a Wittgensteinian
0: idea. We just kind of get on with our lives. It is in a way, yes. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. And, and in many ways, the kind of subtle hope one has when one does philosophy is one's going to unpick the doors of the prison and find that, after all, all the terrible things you fear, like death and so on, aren't actually, you know, you can wake up out of that. Well, there, I guess there's perhaps for some philosophers, and I include myself, there is that vague hope. So I hope I will be a locksmith that would liberate me from the prison of a world picture in which I am being swept towards the cataract uh, yeah. by mm. not the passage of time oh. but um, the ageing of Raymond
1: OK, well, I think that brings up uh, your other book, The Black Mirror, um where you, which is a which I, I recommend everybody read actually Oh, it's, thank you it's, yeah. uh, it's, uh, I mean it's just very interesting to me formally because it's sort of a. It's. I mean there's a chapter in there which is if it's like a conversation with your own corpse yeah yeah which is quite funny in and of itself when you think about it it has that sort of degree of existential absurdity to it Absolutely. yes yeah but I mean uh, when you're talking about sort of things like transience and mortality I'm trying to think then like how are you conceiving of this notion of death I mean where do you position yourself in relation to the, sort of the great philosophers who have thought about it, like Heidegger or Sartre yeah. or whoever?
0: I mean, I mean the, the motivation of the book is in the quote from Ian e. Forster, you know, death kills a man, but the idea of it may save him. And there's this feeling that Heideggerian awareness of death, not necessarily being towards death, but the idea of awareness of death may make one more appreciative of life. Mm. And if one can occupy the Archimedean position of one's own death, you can look back at your life, you can then see its extraordinary richness. And it's a book of celebration. I mean, a lot of my philosophy, although it's it's certainly never revisionary metaphysics, it's sometimes descriptive, it often is celebratory. And this was a chance just to celebrate the complexity of, of live time, live space, of our relationship with each other, of possessions, and all of those things, um, uh, it, it's a book of celebration. as if I was, I imagine myself basically in the dark, peering through a window, looking at this room, which was life. So, so I mean,
1: that makes, makes me ask the question then, what is joy for Raymond Tallis? What does that mean?
0: Joy, actually, it, it's never secure, but it's always the sheer pleasure of discovering a new thought and a new, or discovering a way of coming upon an old one or a way of articulating something. I mean, I absolutely love writing. I go to someone like this mm. at 9 o'clock in the morning, and I know something will happen by 1 o'clock, you know, it's, uh, something I haven't thought of before. It's an extraordinary pleasure. I mean, that is.
1: So the philosophical life is the life of Raymond Tallis.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I just love it. I mean, obviously, I have a personal life as well, and the joy of you know, <laughs> oh, wife bad. and children and all that, and so on. And uh, In medicine, I was completely consumed by medicine. I mean, when I started, it was a 104-hour week. Uh, when I was a junior doctor, and it was never less than a 60 or 70-hour week by the time I retired, um, but it still seems a huge privilege to be able to get up in the morning and play and play all day.
1: You, min- you mentioned there something that was that that that's very important to you. From what I've read, you you were a doctor. You're I guess a neuroclinician, Is that would be that be
0: accurate? To? But my, my I was professor of geriatric medicine. Mm. But nearly all my research was in stroke and epilepsy, so neuroscience was my main focus. You're, yes.
1: you're a teacher, you're an advisor. Yeah. A teacher, yeah, yes, yeah.
0: and, and, and we're raising grants and no. all the usual stuff, yeah. yes.
1: You, yeah, you're a researcher, who sort of so you devoted your life to the NHS effectively.
0: Absolutely, that's why I feel very, very angry about what's happening. I yeah.
1: was about to ask,
0: why are you angry at the moment? I'm angry because by stealth, uh, the present government is trying to achieve uh, what the population doesn't want. In 1983, Geoffrey Howe said we really need to privatise, we need to get rid of the NHS and privatise it. And that was too revolutionary to go outside the cabinet. It remained in cabinet for 30 years. But since then, there's been attempt after attempt after attempt to sell off the NHS because by people who do not share its values, The thing that kept me awake at night when I was a doctor was not how much money I could make from patients, it's whether Mrs. Smith's going to get better, whether our way of delivering stroke care couldn't be improved, and so on. I didn't require competition, I didn't require bribes, I didn't even require threats, and most of my colleagues really had the value that we actually cared for our patients. And that is something that is completely meaningless to say someone like Jeremy Hunt, is the current health secretary failed marmalade uh, salesman, and essentially uh, he does not understand our values. In fact, he actually hates them. It's a bit like when Oscar Wilde said that, um, you know, romanticism is hated by critics because they don't see their own image in the mirror. And it's rather similar to someone like Hunt or his predecessor, Lansley. They could not understand the values that drive medicine. They think you need to whip some carrots, more money or more threats. And it just doesn't relate to what makes people good doctors, concerned doctors. Just like scientists. I mean, a good scientist don't do it for the money. My God, there are such easier ways of making money good Philosophers, you know, I can't think of a more precarious existence than being a philosopher <laughs> moving towards or not towards tenure. Yeah, a you know, poet, maybe I don't know. A poet, exactly, <laughs> yeah. yes, exactly. Right, yeah. yes. So, So, uh, there is this feeling, I and mean, I spend a lot of time on the pavement. And I can tell you, a professor without PowerPoint is a sad dog. I mean, on the pavement, you—you know, you come up to people; they don't want to talk to you. You're up there with Jehovah's Witnesses, or
1: uh, you know. So here, you're referring to your, I guess, sort of your political
0: activism in Absolutely, yes. we spend a lot of time trying to, you know, campaign to save the NHS and to raise people's consciousness of what's happening. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it's it's such a, a unique um, institution within British life. I mean. I've been living in the UK for I don't know since about I think it was two thousand seven, so about a decade. And uh, when I moved here, I know everybody was moaning about the NHS, and everybody was you know as you know people moan about the weather and stuff like that, or the doctor was late this week, or I got a bad prescription, whatever you know. But when I looked at it, I was I was just absolutely gobsmacked. I thought this is. I think these, these, I was looking sort of like, a, like a, at an alien race, like going, uh, which some probably British people are to, Irish people uh, for, for, uh, usually, but I was looking, this is absolute paradise. I mean, at least in terms of the health provision, I think, you know, something that's free at the point of use, and it's astounding...
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think our funding is way below the European average. And it's the value for money as well. Money. I mean, if you look at the beds per population, a thousand population in Germany, it's over 10. It's 2.1 in the UK. Mm. Doctors, nurses likewise. So, And we would do so much better with the current structures if we had appropriate um, funding. We have a very good vasculature with anemic blood going through. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's, it's, it's something the NHS. It's, 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 I mean, I think you signed a letter of protest once about this, um, and I think that one of the lines in the line was that it's the NHS was born out of the sort of the sort of the cataclysms of World War Two, and it was designed to put it to heal a nation together. So it is very much. Embedded, it is very much embedded in the British identity. Do you think
0: a a British identity, a particular time, absolutely Mm. their finest hour in a way? And it seems to me that it's one of the few places where, as it were, the morally uh, most admirable solution also happens to be the most pragmatically effective. Mm. And there's very few places where those two (laughs) things come together. That's very
1: unusual, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, um. Given that you are someone who works at the intersection of all of these different disciplines, science, art, humanities, something that emerges from that is your own very, very distinct, and correct me if I'm wrong, your own very distinct sort of form of... uh, humanism. Your own, uh, does that emerge out of your your, your philosophical work, your, your medical work? Does it, does it
0: all, is it a little bit of all of them coming together? It certainly is a point of convergence. And, and also science. I mean, one of the things that seems to me, the extraordinary thing about science, good science, is it's a triumph over our capacity to deceive ourselves. I mean, one of the most extraordinary Uh, phenomena is the clinical trial. I mean, historically, uh, the, the shaman or whatever believed in his or her treatments because it had a vested interest. The idea that you have a clinical trial where you get other people to evaluate what you're doing, that you are driven by suspicion of the benefits of your own treatment, that you've been driven by conscious and deliberate uncertainty. That is something extraordinary. I mean, it's particularly extraordinary in medicine because there's so much emotion of best interest. But of course, it's true of science as well. I mean, when Quine said, man is the creature who invented doubt, it's not quite right. I mean, a dog could probably doubt. Not at the level of uh, pro- <laughs> yes, but not, probably not at the level of propositional attitude, but can mm. still doubt. But it's the idea that, as it were, system systematic well, systematic doubt Descartes, but deliberate doubt. You are setting up uh, oh, you're structured you're setting up doubt, uh, a structured doubt, a context of uncertainty, and so that to me is one of the most extraordinary and wonderful things about humanity. Yeah,
1: you know? um, I mean that's that's absolutely fascinating because one of the things. I tell my students often, I, say I mean, I don't know, it's more of sort of a, an observation on my part, maybe it underlines my own cynicism, but one thing I say is that never underestimate humans' capacity for self-deception.
0: Absolutely. I've, uh, a, I've written quite a bit about that. One was called the Professor of Data Lean Generalizations, which is essentially how all of us are prone to, to deceive ourselves, because in order to navigate through the world, you have to punch above your cognitive weight. You have to make decisions on things you couldn't possibly have the data. And so uh, we are often professors of data lean generalizations, um, and I've just made a generalization there again. See which is sort of uh... what
1: we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, then, I mean, what is it then that that's 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 sort of I guess the ground of your type of humanism? I mean, is there something specific about? Your, the, the secular humanism that you espouse. I mean, I know you have a book coming out on this, uh, I think, next year. Um, yeah. You said already, sort of when we began our conversation, you said um, that you're, you're, you're someone who rejects the supernatural, but yeah. also someone who rejects the natural. Now, or,
0: or, what or, type
1: or, of humanist does that make?
0: <laughs> yeah. I, certainly, I reject supernatural explanation of this. I, I reject this naturalistic explanation of this, that Jesus has just gifted chimps. Uh, and clearly there's a big space between the supernatural and the naturalistic, and we are extra-natural. We've created a human world that is outside of nature. Ultimately, of course, nature conquers. I mean, I am an embodied subject. And the I am of me has to is like a flower growing in the soil of it is. And there are many things that it is doing upon which I am dependent. Um, that I'm, even, uh, I'm simply unaware of. So there's no, I don't for moment pretend that I've, I've broken free of nature. But mm. between the purely naturalistic event of our growing in the womb and the purely naturalistic event of our dying of some physical or biological cause, we pass through uh, a world which is not understood in terms that could be captured by biology or ethology or Darwinian terms. Yeah. Is that is that a different type of transcendence? It is, absolutely. It seems to me that transcendence yeah. isn't just the privilege of um, those, or at least the belief in transcendence isn't just the privilege of those who believe in supernatural agents and agencies and so on.
1: Mm, well, this is a high point, isn't it? Uh, he replaces the leap of faith with a leap into the into life itself, a leap into the world a leap into the happenings and the goings, the comings and the back and forth, the hopes, desires, aspirations all of these things.
0: That's absolutely true and of course the philosophers who influenced most of my teens and early twenties were Sartre of the being nothingness and Heidegger of being in time and it seems to me that they were always saying that we, as it were, do transcend the facts the physical condition uh, our own um, Facticity.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay, so um, could I say, are you a British existentialist then? Because I started the conversation with asking you, how are you an existentialist? So you've left some of that behind, I think you said, but is there something maybe I'm trying to label you a little bit too unfairly which, but uh, I, know I, I can't seem to get away from the idea that uh, you are a phenomenologist, you do talk about mortality, you do talk about existential you do accept the views of sort of, of materialism I mean that's a very very unusual humanism I, mean, yeah.
0: I, I guess so I mean the truth existentialism it particularly is rooted in a specific phase in history of philosophy mm. and, you, and you relate it to certain names uh, and, and there is a lot about, uh, well, what, what do I believe? I certainly believe that we haven't got a prescribed human essence which we then act out helplessly, that's for sure. In a sense that we forge our own essence to some extent in our existence. So I'm an existentialist to that extent. Beyond that if you look at individual, I mean I wrote a very, well, a book about Heidegger which was very critical of, um, in particular, his use of the word Dasein, which is pretty damaging. And in relation to Sartre, I'm not persuaded by his most, um, or at least by the metaphysics in his most um, developed book, which is Being a Nothingness, simply because he gives nothingness or nothing. Too many muscles. It does all gets up to all sorts of things, which really it shouldn't be getting up to. Um, mm. So
1: does a does a does a in, in that sense. Then does it do? You, do you derive an ethics from this type of humanism? I mean, I guess what drive that is. It, is your type of ethics say your sorry your type of humanism really? is it different to the humanism of say I don't know to Richard Dawkins, the Sam Harris's. Uh, the
0: Dan Dennett's of the world is uh,
1: yes. i mean uh, can you are you deriving something dif- different i mean yeah.
0: i mean i think they are anti-humanist because they try and reduce the human race mm-hmm. you know if a if, 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 uh, if, if dawkins says basically we're lumbering robots uh, mm-hmm. whose job is basically to act as vehicles for our dna which is mm-hmm. a serious replicator then nothing could be more uh, anti-humanist than that Sam Harris, likewise, I mean, although an admirable man, courageous in his stand against Islam and so on, but the fact remains is his, uh, he doesn't believe in free will. And I think you can't be a humanist and not believe in free will. Mm. It seems to me that freedom is the most fundamental aspect of our distinctive nature.
1: Freedom. And that's, freedom. A, that's a. Well, I mean, that's sort of uh, the foundation of any form of uh, ethics, I guess, isn't it? Or, or where you stand and fall on the question of freedom.
0: Ethics I, so, mm. I have trouble with because I don't mm. think I derived any of my ethics from philosophy. I mean, it seems to me that most ethics are what a three-year-old could understand, which is do unto others as you will be done unto. Treat this person as if it was you. Anything beyond that, you know, you can have a thousand pages. Complicating things. Well, yes, you think of, poor uh, Derek Parfit, 1,200 pages, or perhaps it's 2,200 pages of On What Matters trying to get you know consequentialism and um, categorical imperatives all together you see but in the real world i know what i should or shouldn't do there will be dilemmas but they won't be solved by consequentialism versus you know, whatever virtue ethics and i found that in medicine i mean in the end i found medical ethics unhelpful for making ethical decisions a lot of the debate in medical ethics has been going on for 2,000 years, but I had to decide at 4 o'clock in the afternoon whether Mrs. Smith should be switched off or not. And you then, basically in those circumstances, you appeal to some very simple ideas, ideas a child would understand. Yeah, are you doing good? Are you doing bad? Is this cruel? Is this not cruel? Exactly, Sorry, sort exactly. Of... And the rest is its all empirical. You know, what was her? What was Mrs. Smith's view? How will we weigh her interests if the ventilators kept going against their interests of the ventilators? Mm. The fact that we weigh Interest? Well, yeah, yeah, of course. You know, that's the the
1: philosophy Uh, bit. Yeah, I mean, is that? I mean, you're 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 an advocate for. um,
0: Assisted dying.
1: Assisted dying, precisely. Yeah. Yeah. So, is that is is that how you conceive of that in 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 those terms, in those very sort of phenomenological? I mean, when I say phenomenological, sort of lived practical sense, where you you go do I reduce suffering here and then i need to sort of take in these variances of the different uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the different issues such as family, such as yeah. religious beliefs, all of these things.
0: I, I mean, my reasons for supporting sister dying again are the reasons a three-year-old, or perhaps a six-year-old can mm. understand, which is basically pointless, unchosen suffering imposed by other people because of their beliefs on an individual who wishes to die. And who is terminally ill, and whose objectively their prospects are terrible? This must be wrong. I mean, a six-year-old could understand that. Um, so, unless you have the obstacle of some kind of religious belief, you would understand that. You know, and all the secondary issues, like if you have a a um, dying, bill you start down the slippery slope. Well, all the empirical evidence is those slopes aren't slippery, and in fact, actually the slope is less slippery if you have clear legislation about the conditions in which you assist someone to die. Fudging the issue by the double effect or other approaches actually is much more dangerous.
1: Yeah, I mean, this must be something you have seen in your career, I mean, and not been able to act on, I presume. Absolutely.
0: I mean, if I felt I betrayed patients, sometimes it's, well, if I let patients out, sometimes because I made a genuine mistake, which haunt me even now, stations of the cross, but even, you know, but sometimes it's because you had to walk away from them when they had unbearable suffering, which was utterly pointless, which they and all those who love them, truly love them, would regard as, a pointless abomination.
1: What? Um, where does Raymond Tallis see good in the world? Say it again. Sorry. Where does, does Raymond Tallis see good in the world? So speaking, if you get me. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose I must have seen about 200,000 patients in my. Forty, nearly forty years as a doctor. Perhaps, perhaps a hundred thousand. I don't know. And in the contact I saw lots of good people doing good things, bearing unbearable burdens, looking after children who were desperately disabled, looking after spouses, uh, and so on and so forth. So, in individuals, I've seen a lot of good individuals bearing burdens that, with great grace, that I certainly would bear with less grace. But interestingly, they not, it's not because they engaged in the examined life. And one of the things I found quite disturbing was you know, the definition of unexamined life is not worth living. By the sort of Socratic or Platonic criterion, most of the lives of most of the patients, including admirable ones whom I met, were not examined by those criteria. They were often examined by life, but um, one example that struck me was, I when I was pretty junior doctor, I did obstetrics, and in West Bromwich, um, one of the ways of managing um, certain problems of pregnancy was to bring the mother in to hospital for three or four weeks to, for bed rest. So for the first time, probably in their lives, they had freedom not to be bothered by anything. But not one did it trigger, as it were, a magic mountain effect of Hans Castle where they started thinking about life. They were just basically understanding they wanted to go home and reading Heat magazine. Yeah. And what's wrong with that? <laughs> Well, it's interesting because to me, for me, philosophy is probably, apart from the love of my wife and children, is the most important thing in my life. And yet, I know that it matters little or nothing to most people. I sort of fantasize that upstream it will have an influence on the way people think. And in dark times, such as Brexit and Trump times, perhaps it'll have an influence on the way people think. But I feel sometimes uneasy about that.
1: Okay, I think that's probably both uh, optimistic and pessimistic. Place to in this. <laughs> Thank I you, Ray. I <laughs> think
0: I ended on a bum note. That's. <laughs> I'll just keep that in. Yeah.
1: Yes, Thank you for listening to the well. Our theme tune is "Love the Government" by pop Papa Giraffe, and is licensed under Creative Commons. You can follow us on iTunes or your preferred podcast app.